Personal Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is John R. Lindsay, Associate Professor at the School of Cybersecurity and Privacy at Georgia Tech. John, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, John. Great to be here. We're going to be talking about artificial intelligence and the role it plays and may soon play in some elements of U.S. foreign policy. But before we get into it, we probably need to lay some groundwork uh, for this somewhat uh, specialized field. So just to start us out, what is artificial intelligence and what exactly are we talking about when we talk about its application in military and national security policy? Well, John, I think Artificial intelligence means a lot of different things to many people, and that's exactly part of the problem. We've all seen movies like Star Wars and The Terminator, and we know about HAL 9000. And this is this idea that there will be robots that will have human-level cognition um, and perhaps um, cognition that exceeds human capacities. And that leads to all kinds of interesting speculation about um whether we'll be able to use uh, robots to do things that can help us or whether they will you know, end up um, outcompeting humanity altogether. So I think that's sort of the science fiction um, vision. But um, you know, we also have a lot of AI um, all around us. Um, everybody that uh, drives to work using Google Maps or takes an Uber um, is using AI. If you buy something on Amazon, um, an AI is helping to um, make recommendations for your purchases and to find patterns in what you're doing and what you might like. So um, there's sort of everyday AI that's all around us. There's the science fiction vision, and I think there's a huge gap between them um, that maybe we can kind of talk about it uh, today. But in general, you know, AI is sort of just this, it's not a very precise term, it just sort of gestures in this direction of um, machines doing the kinds of cognitive operations that we normally think only humans can do. Okay, so I think you, you may have been hinting at this, but you've written that, quote, there is an emerging policy consensus that AI will transform international politics. Can you tease that out a bit more? What is the emerging consensus as you see it? And what kind of change are people expecting it could bring? Yeah, so the general assumption is that um, we will have AI that will start to substitute for um, for human warriors. So uh, AI will start to do the things that individual troops, um, individual soldiers do. Uh, it'll start to do the things um, that officers, maybe even commanders are able to do. Um, and that means that the militaries that adopt AI and use AI will have a tremendous advantage. And so we've seen the United States, we've seen China certainly um, double down on their investment in AI. Um, with this hope that it will provide a tremendous, um, certainly military, um, but also you know, economic, political, and other uh, types of advantages. So, um, you know, it's this sense that the blitzkrieg was a big deal in the industrial age, the internet was a big deal in the information age, and now we're on the cusp of this new technological revolution of automation. Um, and that's going to have just as much of a decisive uh, effect on military affairs so the story goes, um, as, as these other technologies. So uh, what kind of ethical questions should we think about as we develop more enhanced AI applications? Well, so there's this, a very big discussion in this space about 
whether it's possible to automate the action of human beings, um, what kinds of actions you might automate, um, where you might put it. Um, and of course, this has generated a really, really big uh, ethical conversation. I think people's minds go immediately to um, you know, automating weapon systems and having weapon systems make their own decisions about who and what to target and when to use lethal force. So um, there's this worry that lethal autonomous weapon system or laws um, would be out there on the battlefield and they would have, you know, uh, the authority and the ability um, to use lethal force against human beings. And that, of course, you know, uh, raises the question of, well, who wrote that algorithm? How has the algorithm been trained? What kinds of decisions is it making? Um, if you've ever had Amazon deliver you the wrong product, you would hate to have be the receiving, you know, on uh, the receiving end of that in the battlefield. So um, I think that series of questions is all about where exactly should humans continue to be involved on the battlefield? Um, can they take their hand off? To what degree should they? Um, because we're worried primarily about targeting error. We're also maybe worried about escalation. And we'll get into a lot of these conversations, I'm sure. But I think that's where kind of a lot of the conversations are. And I think maybe some of the conversations should be in the military space, where they already are in the commercial and social space on questions of um, algorithmic fairness and racial and uh, you know, gender bias, things that get built into the training process, um, you know, that have these kind of trickle on effects um, that maybe eventually could affect targeting decisions, but um, may actually end up being more salient for some of the, the military applications that are going to be more realistic. Could the fact that states are competing with each other over these capabilities create problems that aren't necessarily there with respect to the technology itself? Like, does a kind of arms race in AI, so to speak, generate perverse incentives we should be concerned about? Yeah, so that's probably one of the big things that's driving uh, certainly U.S. Uh, investment in AI. I mean, part of it is just the enthusiasm about the technology and just seeing uh, promise and opportunity here in the military space and wanting to go for it. And, you know, the United States has a long tradition of kind of embracing advanced technologies for uh, military applications. Um, but when you've got a major... Uh, competitor, right? When you've got the pacing threat of China uh, that has said that um, AI, Chinese call this intelligentization, it's a real big mouthful in English, Jernihua is the uh, Chinese for that. This idea that the Chinese are going to uh, AIify everything and the Chinese believe that that's going to give them uh, an incredible battlefield advantage, uh, that creates natural incentives for the United States to want to invest in that as well. But I think we should actually you know, if you don't mind talking about China and the U.S. for a second, pulling that apart just a little bit because the incentives for these two states are different and then they do interact in some interesting ways. Right. So uh, China, obviously an authoritarian government, uh, but they've got ambitions to modernize the PLA. If you're going to have a modern military in today's environment, you want to have uh, really, really smart people junior officers and uh, NCOs that you have empowered to make their own decisions and take initiative on the battlefield, right? And we've seen Ukraine do this really, really well. We've seen Russia do this really, really not well. So uh, being able to integrate together as a combined arms team, take the initiative, operate on the battlefield, that's really, really important for modern military effectiveness. 
However, it's also a political risk because that same initiative on the part of the guys with guns can end up with those guns turned back on the state. And so you've got this huge civil military risk um, of coup, ultimately, right, that is kind of built in. And so authoritarian governments will typically coup-proof their militaries, right? We've probably seen this happen in Russia uh, already. And it's a way of trading loyalty um, uh, and military effectiveness, well, AI is really exciting for an authoritarian government because maybe you can get loyalty and military effectiveness. You don't have to give more initiative uh, to your troops. You can continue to indoctrinate them with political training. Uh, and yet you can have uh, a more automated force that's able to do great things on the battlefield. So you can see why that would be really attractive to an authoritarian government. Um, in the United States, it's going to be a little bit different, right? We've got an all-volunteer force. Um, we don't like to see Americans getting killed in faraway places. And so the United States has this long tradition of substituting capital for labor. And so we build um, really exquisite standoff weapons that can substitute kind of fire and technology for traditional human mass and then minimize our casualties. So you've got both countries that would look at AI as like, hmm, okay, this is a cool way to deal with our domestic political constraints on manpower in different ways um, and yet still get this kind of military competitiveness. Um, you know, and for the United States, it's kind of looking at China, right? And this kind of war that would be happening 8,000 miles away um, with, you know, a fairly small force structure for the amount of, you know, geography and difficulty that we're looking at. Um, AI seems like a way to kind of make up for this gap, to kind of substitute our lack of quantity with AI quality. So that's that's I think that's that's what's sort of driving this. It's a little bit different than the than the economic business case. I imagine there are issues of uh, path dependence here. In other words, the way AI technologies and applications develop is in part influenced by state policies or how policymakers see AI as useful. Um, and I wonder if there's any concerns in that area. So, yeah, yeah. So. AI in general has a huge amount of path dependence built into it. So reliance on historical conditions, reliance on, you know, what happens historically to get there. Um, AI, AI as we know today, AI as we can see into the future is really, really reliant on data. And that data can come from a number of sources. It can be expressly curated for the AI. It can be found out there from a lot of different sources. But data itself is historically produced, and then it's incorporated into a learning algorithm and process, right, uh, that gets the AI to be able to recognize the patterns that it does, right? And if you feed it different data, or if you feed it different experiences, if it goes through a different learning process, um, then the kinds of patterns that it's going to recognize could be um, a little bit different, right? So you don't kind of just get this pure value-free intelligence, uh, whatever that would even mean, right? It comes through a certain process. So if we ever think that human concepts and ideas and doctrines and strategies are path-dependent, um, AI is just going to amplify that um, even more. So that's, that's one area. Um, one other area, which is, you know, fun to think about and some people get very very animated about i don't as much but is this question of um, what if we were to create an ai that was 
so powerful and was connected to you know, robotic actuators so that it could take action in the world to keep itself going. And we gave it a really stupid goal, right? We said, okay, make a better paperclip. And it found ways to make lots and lots of paperclips really, really efficiently. And suddenly we find that it is depleting the world's aluminum supply, right? Digging big pits in the earth. And we try to stop it. And it's like, oh my gosh, the human beings are a threat to my paperclip making operations. And so it starts enslaving us, right? And, and so like, it's this environmental and humanitarian and political disaster because long, long ago, somebody decided they wanted better paperclips. So that's kind of this sort of interesting positive reinforcement cycle um, we can get into. Um, again, I don't think that scenario is as realistic but I do think that um, AI in general is, it's built on networks of data and networks of capability. And path dependence is all about network effects, right? Increasing returns to the things that you already do well. So, so yeah, I think that this is, is a very um, path dependent technology. You and your colleague, Avi Goldfarb, uh, published an article in the latest edition of uh, International Security called Prediction and Judgment why artificial intelligence increases the importance of humans in war. You focus on machine learning here, or what you call narrow AI, and you leave aside uh, scarier science fiction-y scenarios of artificial general intelligence. But uh, before I ask you to go into the thesis, there's a few terms that I just wanna uh, try to define, uh, mainly just prediction and judgment. Um, what do these terms mean in the context of your thesis? Yeah, um, so prediction, judgment, uh, narrow AI, general AI, um, these all kind of go together, right? So the general AI story is the one I just told about the you know paperclip apocalypse. Um, and while it's a very stupid goal, this is a very, very smart AI that is able to anticipate, compete with human beings and take action to, you know, do things. So um, it can outthink us strategically and politically in all of these ways. So that's the AGI, right? That's HAL 9000, that's C3PO, that's all of the kind of imaginary of, of science fiction. Narrow AI um, is a is a machine that works in a particular context, right? Um, it uses machine learning algorithms to do something very, very specific. And everything that we call AI today is based on ML. It is a narrow learning system. And this is where kind of the prediction and judgment terms come in. Um, uh, Avi and his colleagues at the University of Toronto have done some just great work on the economics of AI in the commercial world right? They look at it from the perspective of economists, right? And economists always want to take very complex technologies and relate them to uh, particular parameters that matter in economic models. So they look at AI and they say, what is really going on from an economic perspective is that AI is making prediction cheaper, okay? And prediction is the process of filling in missing information. Um, it's a statistical process where you say there's information that's missing. Um, here's what's going on. And that could have several applications. It could be for actual predictions. So if you want to do weather forecasting, okay, that's a prediction, but it's also image recognition. Okay. You're looking at something. I don't know what it is. I'm going to supply some extra information that this is a cat and not, you know, uh, a mountain that I'm looking at. 
predicting your path if you're driving back to the Google Maps uh, example, um, predicting the 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 heaviness of customers that are going through Uber. Okay. So, so it's doing lots of things, but, um, but it's basically prediction and that's different than the full decision making process, right? Um, if we're going to make decisions about anything, we need information about the world or data. We need to make sense of that. That's prediction. But then we also need to have a reason to do these things. And that's where judgment comes in. Judgment is the reason why you're predicting something. It's the reason why you care about the fact that this is a cat rather than a mountain. It's the reason why you want to go somewhere if you're navigating. Um, and then you need to take action. So judgment is what you do with predictions, the kinds of actions you take to make it make sense. So, so data, judgment, prediction, action. These are the four phases of the decision uh, cycle in the military. They call it the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act. It's the same kind of concept, right? All of these sort of have the same intellectual history um, in cybernetics. And the key thing is that narrow AI, machine learning, um, and all other forms of AI um, are really only focusing on a subset of those tasks. They are generating, consuming data, and they're performing uh, prediction services and um, judgment, right, is still the piece that that machines are not really, really good at. So in other words, you guys are kind of pushing back against this notion that AI will replace humans in war and national security. And you make the argument that, as you, as you put it, uh, if AI makes prediction cheaper for military organizations, data and judgment Will become even more valuable and more contested. Can you explain that? Yeah, first? absolutely. So the the conventional wisdom that we sort of started off with this idea that um, automated systems will replace human warriors. Um, kind of think about this as the substitute theory of AI, right? Say so you've got humans; they can do some things. We have military forces; it's mobile or lethal or stealthy or whatnot. You know, take some automated systems, throw them in; they're going to be able to do those same things even even better. Um, and then we have this complementary theory that says AI can do some things well and some things not well at all, right? It is highly specialized for prediction, uh, but humans, right, go out and get and provide the data and they mainly provide the judgment. So uh, in economics, right, if you have a complementary good like bread and butter, okay, and if the bread gets really, really cheap, Right. People can buy more bread, but now they need the other things that go with bread. Right. So butter and jam, and peanut butter, right, are suddenly going to become more valuable. And there's going to be a big market for those things as well. So so AI in the commercial world is making prediction cheaper in all of these different ways, but it's also making judgment more important. So the companies that are doing well are those companies that have reorganized themselves in such a way that they're able to um, to take advantage of this complementary relationship between prediction and judgment. And so, you know, our kind of general argument is that will also follow for military power, right? The hard problem is going to be coming up with those complementary complementarities between uh, prediction and judgment in the strategic space. You go on to point out that the importance of AI in international conflict will mean that the value of manipulating the inputs, such as data, for example, uh, will also increase. Can you tease that out for us? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, 
once again, the sort of the relationship between uh, data and prediction and judgment, right? You have to have um, you have to have a stream of data. There are many different kinds of uh, machine learning um, algorithms. I don't need to go into those right right now, but you know. Um, you have you have data of past events, and if you don't have uh, data of past events, right? If that thing has never happened before, then there's nothing for the machine to base the prediction on. Or if the data is heavily biased in one direction, right? Um, then you're going to get all kinds of false positives and false negatives. And um, you know we've all seen things like this happen, right? So I mean, commercial algorithms. Right. I mean, it's a travesty, right, that they they vastly underperform with black and brown people. Right. Or they come up with incredibly racist judgments. There's lots of efforts to try and fix and tune this. But a lot of that's because, you know, these algorithms have been trained on white faces and white behaviors. Right. And so um, they're making really poor judgments when it comes to looking at a more diverse population if they haven't incorporated that into their their training set. OK, um, so so having all of that data uh, ends up being really, really important, obviously. Right. Um, if data, good data, abundant data, reliable data, unbiased data, quality data, we use this term quality data as sort of a covering term for a lot of these different um, quantities. Right. We're mainly talking about the availability of examples and the availability of unbiased examples. Right. So having that data is key to making sure that your battlefield AI or your military support AI systems do well. Um, obviously, right, a savvy adversary is going to want to target that. And they could target that through um, making data unavailable, um, through behaving in, in new ways so that uh, the thing that the military is doing on the battlefield is not the thing that the system trained to do. Um, um, you, they could perhaps um, intervene in the training process, right? If they had enough foresight and they had enough access to uh, those systems, right? To start injecting more and more biased data so that the machines ended up making um, bad decisions. So, um, so anything that involves data, right, becomes more important in systems that are totally reliant on those data, um, which means that cybersecurity in general, right? which is already important, becomes even more important when you have systems that are totally dependent on the availability, integrity, and confidentiality of those data. Does this, in general, kind of increase the level of uncertainty in interstate conflicts? Yeah, I, I think it does. And the, the reasons are interesting, right? Um, they're not necessarily AI-specific, right? I kind of see AI as a as a continuation of a much deeper trend over the latter half of the 20th century and into the 21st of the increasing reliance on information systems in military organizations. Um, so the Chinese used to call uh, informationization, you know, xinxiwa before they went to full up intelligentization. Um, but I think this is all really part of the same uh, development where you see military organizations that are increasingly substituting their um, uh, shifting, excuse me, uh, people away from physical activities like 
fighting on the ground and lifting and moving things to working in more information intensive uh, environments and bringing those information intensive environments forward as well. And so we see people that are um, dealing with systems, dealing with each other, dealing with complex organizations. And that's been kind of the name of the game. And that involves lots of like really kind of boring, non-glamorous work like uh, debugging systems and working on interoperability issues and um, asking other units for access to their data and arguing about reports and administration, right? And all of these things that keep the bureaucracy up and running. And the trend that we often conflate with the adoption of digital technology is actually the increasing complexity of bureaucratic organizations. So that's the first piece of it. Second piece of it is why is this happening? Well, bureaucracies want information, they want control, they want efficiency, they want to do what they do well. Military organization wants to fight well, right? And it wants to overcome the fog of war and it over wants to overcome friction. And it does that by adopting intelligence systems and adopting command and control systems and adopting standardized procedures. But the irony is that the same systems that are designed to reduce uncertainty become new sources of uncertainty. Those systems have glitches, they break down, they become um, things that uh, units fight about, right? And so um, these information systems that are supposed to provide you better information about the world can sort of start to turn information, excuse me, turn the attention of the organization inwards on their own information processes. So, so I think AI is going to be part of this same process. And there are going to be pressures to reorganize military units and command and control systems and coalition, you know, uh, institutions in certain ways that will make that internal problem more and more complex. So we're going to kind of have this sort of self-inflicted source of uncertainty that's coming out of the organizations that adopt AI um, themselves. I want to see if I can get you to expand on that last point. You you lay out a vision of how human-machine teaming will kind of preserve the value of humans in war and not lessen it. Um, and you just talked about its impact on the on the bureaucracy itself. I wonder if you can just talk about what these developments will do to America's national security bureaucracies writ large. How will they... How will the shape and structure and kind of content of these organizations and institutions change as a result of AI? Yeah, yeah. Well, again, I think they will change in ways that they are already changing right now. And we're going to see more of this, okay, which is, you know, lots and lots of complexity in command and control systems in the midst of actually using them, right? I mean, like that's that's the that's the really interesting things about command and control, which I don't think that a lot of people, even people that are very, very smart about military affairs, don't necessarily get unless they've spent some time forward with an organization or you know read a lot of recent history, right? Is how difficult command and control is and how your command and control arrangements are always falling apart and how commanders are constantly paying attention to their intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, communications, and, you know, computation systems. All right. Um, if the old saw was that, you know, amateurs talk 
tactics and professionals talk logistics, right? That is still true, but now it's the logistics of information. And so commanders are as interested in their information systems and command and control systems as they are in their logistics systems. And those information systems are as likely to be breaking as their logistics systems. So um, so we've already got a tremendous amount of kind of complexity and churn in this space. And it's not just people kind of arguing and being being worried about it is people constantly intervening and changing things and putting in new components and you know spark service people coming up with uh, little modifications and adaptations and, and cool little ideas that they implement and then those cool little ideas end up you know creating glitches and problems for everybody else when you try to you know incorporate it um, that's kind of the reality of modern command and control and being good at that means being able to like work through that just unbelievable, inconceivable amount of information friction. Okay. Um, that's the comparative advantage the United States has right now, honestly, um, over, you know, some other militaries that don't have the same kind of experience and organizational capacity to, to work through that degree of, of friction. So I think we should expect more of that ahead. And my concern is that the, U.S. military hasn't really totally recognized that that's the reality that it lives in. And that's the way that it's able to operate is because it has this capacity to work through friction, to accept that these systems really don't work well the first time. They never do. Right. And it's only this process of human machine learning and adaptation, right, that you get anything to start to to, to work at all. Um, so, you know, kind of the general trend that we see is more junior people getting more responsibility, more junior operational people involved in the reconfiguration and repair of technical systems. Okay, so there's a breakdown between strategy and tactics. That's a long running problem. There's a breakdown between um, contractors designing machines and operators using machines. That's also a long running trend. I think we're going to expect all of these things to 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 change with AI. And my concern is those ex ante trends haven't really been appreciated enough to the point that now we are going to be amplifying them even even more. So as we talk about this, how AI might shape uh, national security bureaucracies, I can't help but think of the domestic element. The shape and kind of role of national security bureaucracies also has impacts on policy itself and on domestic issues. I mean, everything from Eisenhower's military industrial complex on. Um, are there, do you have concerns about how AI will shape bureaucracies and how that might be something citizens have to worry about, the extent to which uh, bureaucratic inefficiencies might cause a lot of waste or uh, perhaps abuse? Could we possibly, is there a risk that uh, we could turn these capabilities inward as we have in the past with uh, technological uh, innovations that we've used abroad and then, and then used domestically? Yeah, I think there's, there's huge risk of that, right? Um, again, this 
This goes back to part of this conversation about comparative advantages between the U.S. and China, right? And one of the big themes that's out there is that um, China wants AI for many reasons. The military is one of them, but obviously, you know, China is the most sophisticated surveillance state in the world, um, has no compunctions about, you know, violating the privacy of its citizens. And, you know, the entire country is is wired in every kinds of way, right? And so it's able to collect all of this information. And AI is this incredible boon for information control and for social control. And, you know, um, China's really been embracing that in a lot of different ways. The fear is that it will be able to convert all of that data that it collects through kind of large-scale surveillance of its society and turn that into a military uh, advantage. We kind of may put a pin in that. Um, we should, should always be skeptical about the ability of AI systems to jump from being really, really good at one application to being good at another application, right? Um, you know, Uber is awesome at routing taxis. It's not really good at cleaning your room, right? Two very, very different tasks. Um, and so, you know, social control and military, you know, activity may also be two different tasks. Okay. Um, but, right, my sort of political IR take on AI broadly is that this is a fundamentally institutional technology. Right. Institutions exist to improve collective action and control. Right. They exist to improve our ability to measure people and resources and activity and to coordinate activity and to enforce our goals. Right. And so AI, right, is a way of automating more institutional functions. And so where does AI work? Well, AI works for applications where institutions are already really, really good, right? So the applications of AI are not necessarily in the battlefield, right? They are in the domestic, economic, and social sphere, okay? Um, and so making society more legible and predictable, that's great for the IRS, right, that wants to identify tax evasion, and it's great for um, anybody that needs to kind of figure out um kind of predictively what social groups are going to do so that you can deliver services. That's a good thing, right? You can anticipate repairs. You can maybe figure out where wildfires are going to be. That's a good thing, right? Um, but there is going to be this temptation to um, to intervene in, in more direct ways. So, um, you know, to the extent that we are already having this debate about, you know, kind of how large the state should be and how intrusive activity should be, AI is going to exacerbate that debate. The new thing, right, that AI adds to that is that where AI, especially in this country, is really, really happening is in the private sector, right? And it's in the really, really big platform companies like Meta and Google and Apple, right, that are collecting huge amounts of data. They've already reoriented their business models around AI. So they've figured out kind of the complementarity of data and prediction, right? And they are starting to perform government-like functions, okay? Um, right? To the extent that we all get our news and information from Facebook or Twitter, right? And those algorithms are curated and managed, right, by by corporations, right? You've got kind of this weird situation where firms, right, are providing kind of government-like protections or non-protections on, you know, First Amendment rights and also also other things, um, but are not subject to the same kind of constitutional protections. Okay, 
drifting way, way, way out of the kind of national security space. But I think that's that's suggestive of where some of the real issues with AI really, really sit. And I think it's in this area of information control, surveillance, capitalism, um, you know, that, that we're really going to to run into the hard ethical and, and political questions about AI. Is there something about the technology here that might tend to push international conflict more in the direction of intelligence and cyber conflict rather than bombs and bullets and traditional com combat? Yeah, quite, quite a lot, actually. Um, you know, so uh, again, the, the paper kind of makes three arguments. The first one we've talked about a ton, which is um, that, that, that AI is a form of prediction that makes judgment and data more valuable. Um, number two, there are some military tasks that are going to be really amenable to automation. Um, those kind of riff on what we were just talking about are the more institutionalized tasks, right? So the more you've got sort of a, a bureaucratic cocoon around the task, uh, the better candidate it is for automation. So anything in, uh, in administration or personnel or to some extent logistics, logistics are interesting because they could be maybe more exposed to the, the frictions of the battlefield and enemy action. But in general, kind of the more bureaucratic standard operating procedure that you have, the more of a kind of cocoon you can put around AI learning processes and the more you can scope um, what that AI system is going to do. Um, but other things, right, where you've got bad data, missing data, lots and lots of uncertainty, um, lots of hard controversial decisions to make, lots of literal judgment calls, right? The hard problems of leadership and strategy and motivating the troops and managing under, you know, difficult conditions and trying to get your coalition partners on the same page and control their risks, right? These are the classic problems of strategy and they are the hard problems of judgment. So like those are sort of the two extremes. And then there's sort of the interesting mixed quantities, right, of places where you've got terrible information, but you've given simplistic judgments. And that's where a lot of the concerns about kind of lethal autonomous weapon systems lie, right? You've said, um, you know, if your prediction is enemy, then shoot. And if it's not, then don't. And But the data that feeds that is terrible, okay? But then there's this other box, and you mentioned it, human machine teaming, where you've got tons and tons of data, right? You've got data that, that are pouring from your uh, satellites and cyber sensors and signals, intelligence sensors all over the place, your commercial open source data, um, uh, your bureaucratic reporting coming from forces in the field and everywhere else in the nation, right? As providing just like petabytes of data on a daily basis. You need to make sense of that, right? That sounds like a prediction task. Great, except you've got all these difficult interpretation problems. What does it really mean? What does Vladimir Putin really, really want? What are the Chinese up to? You know, what are their war aims? What are their you know national security strategies? All these like judgment questions that are just you know bread and butter issues for intelligence and policy analysis. Those are still going to be hard problems. So those are places where you may be able to have uh, AI systems that are providing the prediction, but you have human beings that understand where that prediction came from and how it would be applied. They're really, really immersed in the problem. And they can say, okay, thanks for that recommendation, but I'm going to really sort of figure out about how and when and where it should be um, applied, right? So those are sort of the kind of the human 
and machine teaming kind of questions. That's sort of the second argument, right? Is that we've got a diversity of tasks that it could be applied to. And the third one is, is what you're really getting into. Sorry, this is really kind of long roundabout way of, of answering this question. Um, but the third, third one is that, okay, if you've got a military where data and prediction are more valuable and you've got um, this value that is distributed across this really, really fine parse of tasks, depending on the availability of data and judgment in each task-specific case, you're going to have a more complex organization that can do things that is going to then make data and judgment more valuable, but also more attractive for targeting. We're going to have, you know, adversaries are going to try to complicate your data problem. That's cybersecurity. We talked about that. And we're also going to have adversaries going to complement your judgment problem. How do they do that, right? You do that by splitting alliances. You do that by um, uh, creating legal and moral challenges. You do that from shifting targeting um, uh, uh, targeting strategies from the battlefield and going after military forces to going after more ethically fraught you know, civilian forces, right? This is the same stuff that's been happening in these low-intensity conflicts, right, where you've got forces that do not have the same technological capacity to, to match the United States in the battlefield, but can still challenge us, can still impose costs, can still test our resolve, right, by creating this more morally, ethically, and politically challenging um, type of fight. And again, that's sort of the problem that we're looking at. So yeah, right, like, like AI sort of is going to have all kinds of incentives for, for conflict to shift from so the high intensity scenarios to these more challenging, difficult gray zone um, scenarios. So I think gray zone is kind of the, the future of, of AI and war. It doesn't mean there's not applications at the high end, there are, but I think what we really need to be concerned about are these, these gray zone activities, because I mean, like gray zone just by its very nature, right, makes judgment really, really difficult, makes data both available, but difficult to, to understand and apply. John Lindsay, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you.